0: Hello and welcome to Solutions. This is our seventh podcast for Solution-Focused Hypnotherapists. I'm Cathy Eland.
1: And I'm Trevor Eddles and we're both experienced Solution-Focused Hypnotherapists. So, Cathy, did you enjoy your summer break?
0: Yes, thanks, I did. I managed to get some adventure paddleboarding in, in the Lake District, which I enjoyed very much. How about you? Uh, lots of
1: time spent with grandchildren and finishing my latest book for solution-focused
0: hypnotherapists. I look forward to that. Today we thought we'd look at smoking and how we can help people to stop.
1: So let's take a look at some history. In the Americas, tobacco was used for religious ceremonies and for medicinal treatments long before the Europeans arrived. John Hawkins was the first to bring tobacco seeds to England, And tobacco smoking was first mentioned in 1573. Sir Walter Raleigh brought the first Virginia tobacco to Europe in 1578. In 1604, King James wrote a paper against smoking, but later changed his mind. Generally, people put tobacco in a pipe and smoked it. Because of the demand for tobacco, American farmers started to use slaves in order to produce enough for the European market. And something like a cigar was smoked in Mexico before the Europeans arrived. Cigarettes first appeared in France in the 1830s and were being manufactured by 1845 in France. In the 1880s, an industrial cigarette-making machine was developed and cigarette smoking grew in popularity during the 20th century. More recently, we've seen the invention of the vape. Or is it more recent? Um, In 1927, Joseph Robinson dreamed up what might be the very first electric vaporizer, a device, he said, was for medicinal compounds. In 1963, another man, Herbert Gilbert, pioneered this smokeless non-tobacco cigarette, but you couldn't find any manufacturers interested in making the product. Moving more recently to 2009, we find a guy called Hon Lik. He was a three-packs-of-cigarettes-a-day chap. Um, a Chinese pharmacist invented the vape. He says he was galvanised to invent a new device after his own father, also a smoker, died of lung cancer.
0: So in terms of health, towards the 19th century, cigarettes were called coffin nails, but the health link wasn't officially recognised until later. Nazi Germany banned tobacco in public places in 1941. In 1948, British psychologist Richard Doll published a study proving that smoking could cause serious health damage. And in 1950... He published research in the British Medical Journal showing a close link between smoking and lung cancer. In 1954, the British Doctors' Study, a study of some 40,000 doctors over 20 years, confirmed the suggestion. And it was this study on which the government based its advice that smoking and lung cancer rates were related. Even so, The NHS website is still telling us that smoking is one of the biggest causes of death and illness in the UK. Every year, around 78,000 people die in the UK from smoking, with many more living with debilitating smoking-related illnesses. It's worth pointing out that nicotine is the addictive part of a cigarette. All of the harm from smoking comes from the hundreds of other chemicals in tobacco smoke, many of which are toxic. One of these chemicals is radioactive. It's called polonium-210. This alpha radioactive metal is not added as an ingredient but is present in the trichomes or leaves of the tobacco plant. Tobacco farmers use fertilizers rich in polyphosphates which decays to polonium-210 over time. Studies have confirmed that smoking 20 cigarettes a day for a year is the radioactive equivalent of having 300 chest x-rays. And that is scary. And it is polonium-210 that is responsible for the shift of squamous lung cancer to adenocarcinoma. And it is one of the deadliest toxins, around 250 billion times more toxin than hydrogen cyanide. And as for vaping, well, the jury's still out. It was concluded there is not adequate research to predict long-term health outcomes. But there is sufficient evidence that the use of e-cigarettes can cause acute endothelial dysfunction, oxidative stress, symptoms of dependence, and an increase in heart rate, and that chemicals and e-cigarettes can cause DNA damage and mutagenesis. There is evidence of an increase in blood pressure, systolic and diastolic, after use of nicotine-containing e-cigarettes. So how many people smoke? And vape these days, Trevor?
1: Well, according to the Office of National Statistics, the ONS, in the UK, in 2019, 14.1% of people aged 18 and over smoked cigarettes. That's about 6.9 million potential customers for us. Uh, in the UK, 15.9% of men smoke and 12.5% of women Those aged 25 to 34 years have the highest proportion of current smokers at 19%. In the 1980s, the figures were about 50% for men and 50% of women smoked. And in the UK, there are 2.7 million vapors. So, what methods are available for people who want to stop smoking?
0: Well, obviously, people can just stop using their willpower to cold turkey. There is nicotine replacement therapy, or NRT, which works by releasing nicotine steadily into the bloodstream at much lower levels than in a cigarette, without the tar, without carbon monoxide, and other poisons. NRT comes as skin patches, chewing gum, inhalers, plastic cigarettes through which nicotine is inhaled. There are tablets, lozenges, nasal spray or mouth spray, Zyban, bupropoin, was originally designed to treat depression. No one is sure about how it helps people stop smoking. Champax of Barinicline is a specifically designed medication that helps people stop smoking. It prevents nicotine binding to receptors, which eases cravings and reduces the reward and reinforcing effects of smoking. As already mentioned, people use electronic cigarettes or e-cigarettes that contain a a vapour that's potentially less harmful than tobacco smoke. E-cigarettes contain nicotine. They don't smell or produce smoke, so may be used in places where smoking is banned. And lastly, there's acupuncture, aromatherapy and herbal treatments. And of course, people can try hypnotherapy. But which method works best?
1: Yeah, a study by Hughes et al. in 2004 found stopping by willpower alone had between a 4% and a 10% success rate. Nicotine patches, gums, etc. have between 6.8% and 30% success rate. CYBAM rates are between 14.6%, that's Joran B et al. 2006, and 55.1% found by Hayes et al. 2001. A lot of people left the trial because of the side effects. Uh, Champix scored a 23% success, that was Joran B. Abel, 2006. There is some data suggesting that e-cigarette users have managed to stop smoking completely, perhaps as many as 18,000 people. Acupuncture is apparently no better than placebo, although a 2004 study showed a success rate of 41%. That's what we call an outlier. One study of aromatherapy found the inhalation of vapour from black pepper extract reduces smoking withdrawal symptoms. There are many herbal treatments, including lobelia and St. John's Wort. None have been found conclusively to be effective. When it comes to hypnotherapy, Doran, 2006, found a 53.4% success rate. Crassol Neck, 1985, found a 67% success. And Klein, in 1970, found an 88% success rate. So that's good. So tell me what happens when you smoke.
0: Okay. Well, it takes about 10 seconds for nicotine in the blood to travel from the lungs to the brain. It stimulates the brain to release neurotransmitters and hormones. Example, acetylcholine, adrenaline, arginine, autocrine agents, beta-endorphin, dopamine, histamine, noradrenaline, serotonin, and vasopressin. And as a consequence, nicotine has many positive effects for smokers. Raising acetylcholine levels enhances concentration and memory. Raising acetylcholine levels and noradrenaline levels enhance alertness. Raising noradrenaline levels increases arousal. Raising acetylcholine and beta-endorphin levels reduces pain. Raising dopamine levels increases euphoria and relaxation and probably addiction. Further stimulation occurs because nicotine causes the liver to release glucose and the adrenal medulla to release adrenaline. It seems that smokers take quick puffs if they're looking for a stimulant effect. Lower levels of blood nicotine stimulate nerve transmissions. And smokers take deep puffs when trying to relax. Higher levels of nicotine depress the passage of nerve impulses, acting as a mild sedative. So here's the big question. Is smoking addictive?
1: (sighs) Although the stimulant effect is likely to be addictive, it's thought that nicotine itself is not very addictive. There's an MAOI, a monoamine oxidized inhibitor in tobacco, which contributes to the addictiveness of tobacco. So stopping smoking must mean overcoming a combination of a low level of addiction and a high level of habit. If smoking is so bad for them, why don't people stop? And if stopping smoking is easy, why don't they just do it?
0: That's a good question. And the answer must be because they think they're getting some benefit from smoking. Perhaps they look cool or smoking makes them part of a gang or a group or smoking helps them relax or better able to socialise. Perhaps smoking is a habit that is familiar and comfortable or perhaps a way to take a mini break during a day at work. And ten, a hundred a thousand and ten thousand cigarettes later, the primitive brain thinks it's found a solution to the uncomfortable withdrawal pangs, similar to feeling stressed, to have another cigarette. Therefore it stores this solution in the behavioural library, the hippocampus. But of course those benefits come with a cost, and it's not just the money. There's aging of the skin, a loss of fitness, a reduced fertility, and of course loss of life itself, because one, two, frequent long-term smokers die. And you're interested in the language people use, aren't you, Trevor?
1: Yes. Um, You hear people say that they're quitting cigarettes, and we all know nobody likes a quitter. Um, One of the problems many people face when stopping smoking is that they think of it as giving up smoking. They're still thinking in terms of the problem rather than the solution, i.e. becoming a non-smoker. So don't say... Give up smoking. As I said, the words give up always sound bad. It's as though you're a loser. It has undertones of failure. Always use a positive phrase like become a non-smoker. Clients are then working towards a goal, never away from a problem. So I don't say stopping that smoking habit.
0: We could sell them the the idea of being a non-smoker like this. Let's suppose there's a new medication available that would help people to live longer, healthier lives. Wouldn't people pay to take the drug? Suppose this new drug gave them more money. Wouldn't they want it even more? And that's what's being a non-smoker, a way of living a longer, happier, healthier life and having more money. People would be crazy not to want it. And that's what being a non-smoker offers you. Another problem is that people tend to think of themselves as a smoker, which implies it's part of their identity and hard to change. Whereas if they think of themselves as a person who smokes, it's very easy for them to become a person who doesn't smoke. And so stopping smoking isn't so hard.
1: And Some people feel that they're losing the benefits they get from smoking. You mentioned benefits earlier. People often think, even subconsciously, but they're getting benefits from smoking. So it's important when planning to stop smoking to not lose something useful. What's needed is something to replace it. I mean, there's hardly anyone over the age of 17 who thinks smoking is cool and that being a smoker will give you access to the in crowd. But quite often smokers rather enjoy the 10 minutes of fresh air and time to think that they get when they go out for a cigarette. And if that's the case, then an alternative has to be built into the smoker's day to retain that. Perhaps a meditation class or a book of meditation. That will give them something that keeps the me time in their day. It's the same with relaxation. Time will have to be built into the day where the ex-smoker is able to relax. People who spend most of their day in their primitive brain need to see short-term benefits of not smoking. So those benefits need to be clear and obvious to them when their brain is triggered into sending a, oh, let's go out for a cigarette message. In the non-smoker's mind, not smoking must not equal missing out on something.
0: SFBT says that if you assume that the client's behaviour has a positive intention and that some behaviours can have negative consequences, e.g. smoking, then you can separate a client's behaviour from their intention, i.e. they are a person who smokes rather than being a smoker. You can then focus what the positive intention was behind the behaviour and help the client to experience more of that. So, as much as 80% of what you say in each session can be process-based, what change they want to make rather than content-based, the actual behaviour that brought them. And that 80% can be very similar with different clients with different problems. And that's why we don't need to use highly specific behaviour-oriented scripts in our work with clients.
1: Yeah, For most people, while they're in their intellectual brain, they're perfectly capable of making reasoned and logical decisions. They can notice situations in which they would previously have had a cigarette and avoid them. They can deal with social pressure if everyone around them is smoking and packets of cigarettes are offered to them. They can ignore triggers that would have led them to taking a cigarette. But the problem comes when they're no longer in their intellectual brain but operating from their emotional brain. If they feel frustrated, frightened, angry, depressed or anxious, We know they will be in their primitive brain, and they're more likely to behave as they used to. If there's some kind of conflict situation with family, friends or at work, then the person will be in their primitive brain and less able to cope.
0: The good news is that these situations can be planned for and relapses prevented. Firstly, a person can rehearse how they will behave in a given situation. They can practice what they'll say to their smoking friends or they can plan in their mind how, after, say, arguing with the children, they go into the kitchen and make a cup of tea rather than go outside for a cigarette. This planning will give them a new behaviour strategy to use rather than the old one. Cognitive reframing will help people to think differently about their old habits and the triggers that would cause them to smoke. They can also reframe their thinking. That urge to smoke is just a a tiny dopamine message in the brain. It's not some giant that needs to be contained by the person's willpower or whatever other metaphor they use. Other lifestyle changes can be made such as regular exercise, yoga, massage that can help a person to become more relaxed generally and be able to cope better with the stresses of everyday life. Clients should avoid spending time with smokers and spend time with people who don't smoke. And that will help them break the smoking habit. Mm, Good
1: idea. Joe Griffin and Ivan Tyrrell, the human givens people, suggest a connection between expectation and addiction. They say that two distinct neurochemical systems mediate motivation and reward. The opiate system and the dopamine system. The dopamine system generates motivation. It creates an appetite and makes you want to do something. The opiate system rewards us for satisfying a biological urge. Although with smoking, people often want to have a cigarette. But after they've had it, they realise that they didn't really enjoy it. Griffin and Terrell suggest that whenever we are motivated to master something new, the dopamine circuit is activated and we experience pleasure. However, once we've learnt that new skill, we experience less pleasure. But once we find a new challenge, the dopamine starts flowing again, and that way we're adapted to keep mastering new things. However, this mechanism can be hijacked. The spoker's hypothalamus signals to the amygdala that nicotine levels are low. The amygdala sends a signal to the anterior cingulate to have a cigarette. The anterior cingulate checks for relevant past memories to evaluate how important that signal is. These are usually positive. It's called euphoric recall or rose-tinted propaganda. So the anterior cingulate adds its own dopamine to the message. And because of all the dopamine, the conscious mind, your executive function, has little choice about what to do. It goes ahead and sends a message to have a cigarette.
0: This is John Ray's boss, secretary metaphor. The anterior cingulate is the secretary and the prefrontal cortex is the boss. Dopamine motivates behaviour to bring about something that is expected, and smokers expect to experience satisfaction, but it is temporary. Griffin says that it is more often a brief assaging of the discomfort caused by expecting to smoke rather than pleasurable in itself. So according to Griffin, the answer to addiction is to revise expectations and to have the free will to choose how to behave. Every time an urge for a cigarette arises, we should remind ourselves that one won't be enough. Soon, instead of expectations of pleasure, the anterior cingulate will deny the request and the desire will no longer reach our consciousness. Soon, the hypothalamus will get used to the new low nicotine levels and won't signal to the amygdala. Remember, even people claiming that smoking gives them pleasure don't want their children to smoke. So tell us what happens when you don't smoke, Trevor.
1: Yep. bear in mind that smokers do stop for long periods of time. For example, on long-haul flights in restaurants, hospitals, theatres, and around newborn children. And when they're asleep, no one wakes up during the night because it's time for a cigarette. Anyway, the health benefits of stopping smoking after 20 minutes... Uh, blood pressure and heart rate decreases. After 12 hours, carbon monoxide levels in the blood decrease to normal. After 48 hours, nerve endings and sense of smell and taste both start recovering. After three months, circulation and lung function improve. After nine months, there's a decrease in cough and shortness of breath. After a year, the risk of coronary heart disease is cut in half. After five years, the risk of stroke falls to the same as a non-smoker and the risks of many cancers, that's mouth, throat, esophagus, bladder, cervix, all decrease significantly. After 10 years, the risk of dying from lung cancer is cut in half and the risks of larynx and pancreas cancers decrease. After 15 years, the risk of coronary heart disease drops to the levels of a non-smoker. There's lowered load of risk for developing chronic obstructive pulmonary disease.
0: All good news. There are other things that can help. One of the most successful ways of changing a person's behaviour is to get them to agree in front of a group of people that they're going to make a change. That's kind of the way that Weight Watchers groups work. No one wants to, to be seen to fail in front of others. So ensure your client tells some people that they are working towards changing a habit. It's good if people can help and encourage your client. It's even better if the client can have a friend who is changing the habit at the same time. They can use each other for support and motivate themselves and, of course, not let each other down. And you can tell clients that they can have a reward for themselves for establishing a new habit. And that will reinforce that new habit. So what else is good for creating new positive habits?
1: Yeah, BJ Fogg, who's Director of Persuasive Technology Lab at Stanford University, has a solution to the problem of how to stop sabotaging our own efforts to build new habits. He suggests that as soon as we create a new habit, whether that be to eat less, go to the gym or stop smoking, for example, our brain tries to find a way to hack our plan. So the problem is, how do we get a client to actually go to the gym, when it's so much easier to stay in bed in the morning, or whatever. Anyway, Fogg's solution is to define a first step that takes less than 60 seconds to do. So your client doesn't try to build a habit of going to the gym, rather, they build a habit of picking up their kit bag and getting in the car to drive to the gym as soon as they get up. If you think big habits comprise these micro-habits, So if you've successfully completed each micro habit, then you've established your larger habit. This leads our clients to an easier way of creating new habits, provided they can identify the triggers or cues that cause the habit. They need to know exactly what the trigger is, what it looks like and when it occurs. This is a bit like hot thoughts in CBT. Uh, Usually this leads them to a particular behaviour, the one they're trying to stop or modify. They need to be able to describe the behavior and if possible, say what benefit they get from it. The last stage is to say what they will do instead. Now remember, this can't be some vague aspirational habit like go to the gym. It needs to be a clear and definite micro habit, one that is probably the first step in a larger habit. So you want your client to say, when X happens, Instead of doing why, I will do, and that's the new microhabit. Do you have any smoking metaphors that you share with clients?
0: Yeah, I do, actually. Uh, people understand that smoking a cigarette is a bit like wearing tight shoes for the relief when you take them off. Or you can think of smoking like a wart that is no longer supplied with blood and will just disappear. Or you can think of smoking like an apple rotting from the inside. Or think of you smoking like a person falling out of a tree before they hit the ground.
1: (laughs) Well, you might think of it as an abusive relationship where your partner starts to diminish your confidence and health, but you still defend them, even though they're taking your money. Or you might think of smoking as a parasite that takes your energy and money and leaves you full of nicotine. Anyway, tell us about the CPHT way of helping people stop smoking.
0: So there are three parts to this process. Information gathering part of the session is crucial. We explore and occasionally push the client not only to think about why they want to stop, but also what they enjoy about smoking, which seems odd. But we do need to know what propaganda the primitive brain is feeding them. We also ask about the client's understanding of how the process works. Sometimes the answer to this is sophisticated And other times, it can be, you're going to reprogram my mind. And we can put them straight about that. Next, we talk about why and how the client smokes and critically how the mind works in relation to stopping smoking. The second part is on the couch and we do the hypnosis. And the third part is the relaxation track that reinforces the process. We talk about why some people find it easy to stop smoking Uh, and others find it difficult. We talk about how the brain works and how the pro and anti-smoking lobbies affect the decision-making. The primitive brain, we mentioned, is like a a small child having a tantrum. We say there are two skills needed to stop smoking and stay that way. Firstly, to recognise the propaganda from the primitive brain or that small child. And secondly, making no a definite no. We talk about habits in the primitive brain, the dangers of smoking, stress and the role of neurotransmitters, and we give them the access to our relaxation track. What would you add, Trevor?
1: I always use the Dickens process with clients. This was originated by Tony Robbins and based on the Dickens novella A Christmas Carol. You know, the bit where Scrooge has shown his potential future. The client visualizes two potential futures and attaches feelings to both alternatives, which is what makes the better choice likely to succeed. Here's what I get the client to do. Imagine that they're at a fork in the road. One path is them continuing to smoke, and the other path shows what will happen if they become a non-smoker. I get them to imagine going down the keep smoking path, and they imagine how bad things will be in one year, five years, 10 years, 20 years. I mean, it depends. We'll examine their health and perhaps their bank account. I get them to imagine not being able to play with their children or grandchildren because they're out of breath when they move quickly. They must imagine the worst case scenario. Then perhaps they imagine having to break news to their children and grandchildren that they're dying of lung cancer and they won't see them grow up. I get them to really feel what it would be like, experience the pain, the lack of happiness. Then they visualise going to that fork in the road, and this time they choose the path of change, where they've stopped smoking. I get them to imagine how they'll feel in one year, five years, ten years, twenty years. They're much healthier now, more successful, because they now have more energy and feel stronger. They get to meet their grandchildren and play with them. They can see themselves enjoying life to the full. I get them to imagine the best possible outcome and the most positive version of themselves. They should really see, hear and feel it. And then back to the present and that fork in the road. I ask them which path in life they want to take. Because of how they felt at the end of each path, they are very likely to make the sensible choice.
0: I also ask them, what's the worst thing that can happen to you if you stop? And I say things like, don't give up smoking for the fear of dying. Become a non-smoker for the joy of living. Remember, the cigarette does all the smoking. It just needs a sucker at one end. Let's talk about scripts. (laughs)
1: Okay, Um, yeah, every other script we use is indirect, you know, the as you lie there, so relaxed, I wonder whether you can imagine yourself, whereas the CPHTI script I was given is very direct. It says things like, because all that desire to smoke, every bit of it is now being removed from your entire being. Do you still use that one?
0: Yes, I do, and it seems to work well. I use the deepener, the stairs and the warm soft carpet versus the cold tiles, the room where smoking does not exist. And then I follow on with a direct language pattern and I still use a metaphor, the village at the end before closing. What do you use, Trevor?
1: I use the Matthew Dyson script as the core of what I do, plus a lot of other bits as well. With many clients, I give them a direct suggestion before I bring them out of trance. So I give them that paragraph in capitals from CPHT. Um, I also very occasionally use the abusive relationship script from Mark Tyrrell. It very much depends on how much time we've got.
0: That's brilliant. OK, I think that's about it for this podcast. I do hope you found this useful. And I hope we've given you
1: some ideas about how to help people become non-smokers.
0: So it's goodbye from me, Cathy Eland.
1: And it's goodbye from me, Trevor Eddles.
0: See you next time.
1: Bye.